0: Well, I am privileged to introduce my favorite person in the whole world. Hi. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. She's not only my favorite person, but she is my favorite chick preacher, which is awesome, because you, know, you know, Christine Kane's awesome, Lisa Bevere's awesome, but I'm serious, if I had to listen to one, if I you know, just had one chick preacher to listen to, it would be you. And she looks stunning today, doesn't <laughs> she? You. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to get myself off the stage before I get myself You're in more my trouble. You're taking my time. <laughs> I'm taking your time. Everyone knows I'm the time stickler for the time. Get off the stage. You've used all your time. <laughs> no, I don't really say that. But when they call me and say, "Can I have 10 extra minutes?" No. If you can say it in 35 minutes, if you can say it, if you need 45 minutes, you can say it in 35 minutes. Anyway, um, uh. last night as I was going over my message um, for the last time before preaching it to all of you, I felt the Holy Spirit say, hey, you know that intro, that well-crafted intro? Everyone who preaches knows that the intro is the hardest part, right? Because like you want to nail it. Like you want to come out with a bang. Like you want to get people's attention. So you work really hard on your intro, even if it's pointless. And (laughs) last night I felt the Holy Spirit say, hey, that first page, your intro, get rid of it. And I was like, really? I mean, it's pretty good. (laughs) And I felt the Lord say, yeah, it is. But it's your words, not mine. So... There goes my intro. (laughs) I don't want to fall on it later. Paul, don't dance over there, okay? (laughs) Um, The reason that I'm a little bit speechless is because I so want the Holy Spirit to speak into your hearts today, and I I I can't say those words on that first page because they were my words. And what the Holy Spirit is going to do in your life today, I believe, is set a fire in you, is prompt you to ask yourself some questions, some hard questions that could alter the course of your life. So we're here at the end of our series, The Others, and someone said to me last week, I wish this one could keep going. I love this one. It's been so interesting. And to that I say, yes, it has been so interesting and it has definitely um, been amazing to hear all these stories of these people, these ordinary people um, that are being told, people that we don't maybe usually talk about. But here's the thing, this book is full of interesting stories to discover. And all you have to do is open it up and read it. And one of my favorite things to do is to find parts of the Bible that I've never noticed before. You know, instead of turning to the parts of the Bible that we read over and over and over again, dig in and search for things you've never read before. You will be amazed at what you find. The purpose of this series was to highlight less notorious people, to put a spotlight on the ones whose names are not very well known. This is actually one of my favorite things to do in life, is to find the people who don't have a spotlight, who don't have a stage, and to make them known. Do you know what happens when you find someone like that and you give them a spotlight? They just come alive. They get lit up. They're like, oh, this is what it feels like to be known not for fame's sake, not for the spotlight's sake, but to call the gifts in them out that God has put in them that maybe they didn't even know were there. I had more than one leader do that for me in my life. Say, Heather, I see this in you. Here, here's a little spotlight. Here's a little spotlight for you to stand in so that your gifts can be called out. But I think it's important that we keep in mind that this does not mean just big things. This does not mean a stage. This does not mean all of the what the world would consider successful. As you'll hear today, it was very ordinary people doing ordinary tasks that changed the course of history. As I read my Bible more and more and more, I don't see famous celebrities. I see ordinary, they're famous now. Because time does that, right? Time puts people on a pedestal. But back then when they were doing these things for God, they were very ordinary people doing ordinary things in their lives and God used them in amazing ways. Some of you know that my sister Heidi and I have a podcast and every single week on our podcast we talk about how ordinary is extraordinary. Have you heard us say that? Some of you have. And we make a point of recognizing the ordinary things in our lives. Here's the thing. When we begin to look at those ordinary things through an extraordinary lens, everything changes. And by everything, I mean your heart changes. You start finding joy and excitement in the things that you once found dull and monotonous. My very handsome Canadian husband in his flannel shirt. There's just something about a Canadian in flannel that does it, if you know what I mean. (laughs) We offer a marriage session right after church today. (laughs) Anyway, he started traveling for work when our son was one year old, so 10 years ago. For the first two years when he would leave, I would hit the pause button on my life. I would go into survival mode, just waiting for him to come back so I could once again hit the play button on my life. I wasn't seeing the extraordinary in my very ordinary situation. But after two years of hitting the pause button, and quite frankly, after two years of sulking while he was gone, The Holy Spirit finally got through to me. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit wasn't speaking all of this time. It's that I wasn't listening. My own voice about, oh, poor me, was drowning out the voice of the Holy Spirit. I think that happens a lot. Our own voice, our own self-pity drowns out the voice of the Holy Spirit. And we stay in the miserable situation that we think we're in. But I finally began to listen to the Holy Spirit, and I began to see the blessing of Chris's travel schedule. Here are some of those blessings. He was so fulfilled in this. My husband went to Russia for six months when he was 15 years old. He has serious wonder lust in him. Like, I'm talking crazy, right? And this was filling a need in him. He is my number one person. And so this should have been a big old check mark in the blessing side for me because it blessed him. Part of his travel took him up to his very awesome hometown of Calgary, Alberta, where his family lived. And work paid for it. We couldn't afford to fly up there very often. It was expensive to fly four people up there. But God made a way for him to go see his family. See, his traveling wasn't just about me. It was also about his mom and dad getting to see their son more often. Check in the blessing box. I didn't have to cook as much. The kids and I were totally happy with cereal and eggs. Check in the blessing box. Sometimes we get to go with him. Check. I have a little bit of wonderlust as well, so that helped. I, sorry babe, got to sleep alone sometimes. (laughs) I would love to sleep with you, but there's something about a big king-sized bed, sleeping in it all by yourself, that every once in a while is a blessing. (laughs) Do you hear what I'm saying? The blessings, when I begin to notice them far outweighed, the negatives that I was sitting in and wallowing in. The difference is that I started to focus and highlight the blessings instead of the hardships in my situation. The situation didn't change. My husband, 10 years later, is still traveling even more now than he did then. But my heart changed. So the four stories that I'm going to tell you today are of four ordinary women who did extraordinary acts who did ordinary acts that had extraordinary results. And I'm going to ask you four questions, and this is your job. This is where you come into it, okay? Please write these down. If you write nothing else down, get your phone out, take notes, take a picture of them when they come up on the screen. I don't care how you do it. Write them down because I feel like God is asking each one of us to answer these questions in our own life. And some of these you'll know the answer to right away because the Holy Spirit is already speaking them to you but others you might have to search for. You might just have to say, Lord, what what is the answer to that question? What are you asking me? The very first person, Sarah. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18. Here we find the story of Abraham and Sarah. Okay, Abraham, this hero of faith, right? The big papa of our faith the father of our nation, this giant. He's up on a pedestal so high like we can't even hardly see him. God's told him, leave everything that you know and go to a land that I will show you, which is just a crazy story in and of itself that we can't talk about today. But crazy as it is, Abraham obeys. He does it. He goes. And God takes him to this land of Canaan from Midian to Canaan, and God then makes this outrageous promise to him, and he says, I'm going to give you descendants that are as many as the stars, which is kind of hilarious because Sarah and Abraham are getting up there in age, and they don't have any children yet. And then there's Sarah, and she knows about this promise of God to them. But the problem is is that her faith that God's promises will actually come true are very small. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. She says, hey, Abraham, why don't you go sleep with my maid? Maybe she'll give you a son. Hello? Fail? What a horrible plan. But you see, it was disgraceful for a woman to not be able to give her husband an heir. So she let what society thought of her, overrule the promise of God to her. Abraham did have a son named Ishmael through Sarah's maid, Hagar, but their impatience with God's promise caused heartache and never-ending strife that still goes on today. We are still dealing and witnessing the strife between their disobedience and their impatience with waiting on God's promise. But thankfully, we serve a God that is always about redemption. Man, if there's one word that I've been hearing God say over and over and over, it's that I am a God of redemption. And Sarah's story does not end there. Sarah's story does not end with her disobedience. Sarah's story ends with God's promise coming true. We're reading in Genesis 18, chapter 1. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. "'My Lord,' he said, "'if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet.'" And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham took some food. When the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. Where is Sarah, your wife? The visitors asked. She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time. We know that they were in their 90s, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself, like probably many of us would do. And said, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Flip over to chapter 21. The Lord kept his word, and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. Here's the first question I have for you today from the life of Sarah. What does God want to put in you? that seems impossible. Sarah laughed because she thought it was impossible. In man's terms, it was. In God's terms, it was possible. What we think is impossible, God says, is anything, is anything too hard for the Lord? God is saying, I am God. I can do anything. Anything I choose to do. What in your life right now seems impossible? Is this something God has called you into and it seems impossible? Is it a physical healing and it seems impossible? The doctors have said there's no hope. God said there is hope. Hope. Is it a restored relationship? Is it a relationship that has just gone off the tracks? And you think there's no way possible that it can be brought back to wholeness. And God says, I am the God of the impossible. Maybe it's redefining your family legacy. Maybe you look at the family that you came from and you think there is no way I can be the one to change our family's legacy. It's impossible, and God says, no, with me all things are possible. But here's the thing, we have to choose his promise over our pessimism. For someone in here today, God is saying, I want to do something in you that you think is impossible, so start trusting that my promises are true. What does God want to put in you? What does he want to heal you from? What does he want to restore in you that seems impossible? Start believing that his promises make it possible. Now we're going to fast forward some 500 years from the time of Abraham and Sarah. And we find the descendants of Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. And they all live in Egypt. God has been faithful to his promises. So much so that their descendants are now a huge number. So big of a number that Pharaoh, the king in Egypt, is worried about them. He says, they're getting too big. There's too many of them. They're too strong. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter one. Pharaoh says, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us. Think about that. God took this little remnant of people when one man, when Joseph came to Egypt, and now the Hebrews outnumber the Egyptians. Look what God can do. Look at the army that God can create. They are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't and war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape our country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities. But more and more Egyptians oppressed them. The more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. And the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. There were two women. There were two women in this Hebrew army. Their names were Shifra and Pua. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders, and they allowed the boys to live too. These were ordinary women going about their very ordinary, some would say mundane, work. But they feared God, and they obeyed him instead of the evil king. Their work was not flashy. It wasn't celebrated, but through their work, and more importantly, through their obedience, God used him to significantly alter the lives and the lineage of the Hebrew people. You see, Israel's Future was dependent on the wisdom of Shifra and Pua. Do you know who was born during that exact time? Moses. Do you know whose life was spared because of their act of obedience? The man who would come back and set those people free. The Bible says in chapter 2 of Exodus about this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. That was Moses. Here's what's the most amazing part to me about these women, okay? I highly doubt that those those midwives knew that Moses, when they delivered him as a baby, would be the one to deliver them all from bondage. Unless God had given them a prophetic word, which we have no reason to believe that he did, they were just acting, their ordinary jobs, they were acting in obedience because they feared God. They might not have even known that that deliverance came. Moses was 80 years old when he came back from Midian, back into Egypt, to set those people free. We don't know what happened to them. They might have not been alive. They might not have known that their simple but profound act of obedience made freedom for the Hebrew people possible. You never know what your simple act of obedience to God, the impact it might have. 80 years from now, five years from now. They didn't do it because they were looking for fame or status. They did it because they feared God and they chose obedience. Here's the second question that I want to ask you from the story of Shifra and Pua. What needs to be allowed to live in your life? The devil may have been trying to kill something in your life. And God says, no, through your act of obedience, this thing will live and freedom will be the result of your obedience. Is the devil trying to kill something in your life? Is the devil trying to kill a gift or a calling that you have? And God says, no, this will live. Is the devil trying to kill your marriage? God says, no, this will live. Is the devil trying to kill your finances and God says through your obedience to handle your finances the way that I have instructed you through your finances will live and you will have freedom in your finances. What is it that the enemy wants dead that God wants to breathe life into? God wants to say, let it live. But it might take an act of obedience on your part. Our third Other is a quick one, because this woman is very well-known. She's had a spotlight on her from from the moment that she gave birth to the Savior of the world. Her name is Mary, and it's not so much her story that I want to highlight. It's the question that comes from her story that I want us to focus on. Go with me to the book of Luke, if you will. I love Luke. I know I've said this before, but I'll probably say it every time I use Luke. I love Luke because he gives all the details, but <laughs> right, you read the other Gospels, and you're like, man, they left out a bunch of stuff, and then you go read Luke, and you're like, ah, there's the whole story. Luke was a doctor, so he's very detail-oriented, so he put all the good, juicy details in his Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 26, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Another super cool story. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, as I would be also, (laughs) Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, How can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby that will be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. Then Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth. And then Mary sings this amazing song of praise. I don't know how I missed this. I read it. And I missed this. I can't read it to you all today for time's sake, but the condition of her heart was made so abundantly clear. Here is Mary in this humiliating position. She must have felt so very alone. The world looks at her, unmarried, pregnant, and they see failure. They see supposed sin. But she doesn't let that define her. Instead, she offers this song of praise to the Lord. How my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Instead, she trusts God and she praises him. Luke chapter 2. There was a census at that time. And because Joseph, Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient hometown. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. We all know what that means, right? There's that time when you're like, I probably shouldn't ask. because <laughs> I'm not really sure. And then there's that other time you're like, oh, yeah, when are you due? Mary was obviously pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first son, a child, a son. Here's my point. Mary carried around inside of her and then gave birth to Jesus, who saved the world. For Jesus to fulfill the Father's plan for him here on earth, a plan for Jesus to die a horrific death and in doing so be the sacrifice needed for the sins of all mankind, Mary had to first give birth to him. A birth had to take place. Here's my third question. What has God put inside of you that needs to be birthed so that others may have freedom? God has put gifts and talents and ideas and purpose inside of every single one of us very ordinary people. No matter how ordinary you feel, God has put something inside of every single one of you. But some of you are walking around and you're 15 months pregnant. Some of you are walking around and you're five years pregnant. Some of you are walking around carrying inside of you what God wants to bring out of you so that your gift can be used to bring him glory and others freedom. Is it a gift of leadership? You're carrying it around and God says birth it, use it. Is it a gift of teaching? Is it a gift of helping people with their finances? Is it a gift of hospitality? God says you have this home. Your doors are closed. Birth it. Open your doors and bring people in. Is it a creative gift? What is it that God has put in you that you need to birth so that others can have freedom? Just like babies, every gift, every gift has a due date. Okay, if a baby is born too early, life is hard to sustain. The baby needs, lo- baby needs lots of extra help and it needs machines. And thankfully, today we have those things and uh, medical miracles that, that's amazing. But sometimes, if born too early, life cannot be sustained. When we rush God, when we try to take matters into our own hands, when we try to use something that He's put on us that's still cooking. if I'm going with the birth analogy we're going to go all the way not all the way don't worry the same is true with the gifts and talents that God's put in us when we force something instead of trusting God for his timing the thing may die or we may drag it along but it won't be healthy But if a baby is born too late, the mother carrying that baby, and let's be honest, everyone else around her, is miserable. She's burdened. It's a heavy weight. I ran into someone the other day and they were like 11 days overdue. I didn't even know they let that happen these days. And she was miserable. it's time to ask yourself, am I carrying around something that God has put in me that no one else is getting to be a part of? Who gets to hold that baby when the mom is still carrying it in her belly? Just the mom. Who gets to hold that baby when that baby is born? Who gets to be a part of the joy and the life? Everybody else does too. What has God put inside of you that you need to birth so that others may have freedom? You see, you are not just here for you. You are here to use the things that God has put in you to bring glory to him, to be the the light in your world. And you may be the only light in your world. You may be the only one in your circle with that particular gift that God has put in you. And when you are not using it, when you are not allowing it to be birthed, others may not be able to find freedom. So number one, what does God want to put in you that is impossible? Number two, what needs to be allowed to live in your life? And number three, what needs to be birthed so that you and others may have freedom? And I know you might say those sound kind of redundant, Heather. Those sound like the same questions. Yeah, they kind of are. But here's what I know about God. He says the same things to us over and over and over and over again in this book. He just says them in different ways because some of them hear different, hear him differently. Different words speak to different people, different stories relate to different people. This next story, this one should be a Hollywood blockbuster. Like I'm talking rated R, what goes after R? I, I don't even know. Okay, I've never been to one of those. Um, <laughs> I bet many of you have never even heard this woman's name. Sometimes I read my Bible and I think, how are these things even real? Like, how, how could that have even have happened? This is one of those. To find this story, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Judges, chapter 4. I'm actually gonna read to you the content of the book of Judges. If you don't know, in your Bibles, well, at least in my Bible, in most Bibles, there's a section right before the chapter starts called Content, and it's super cool. Like, it's like taking a snapshot of the whole book. And I just, I love to read that part of my Bible. So if you've never read that, go read those, super cool. The book of Judges. Often, the greatest heroes appear in the midst of the worst chaos and confusion. This is true in the book of Judges, where true heroes and heroines are called upon repeatedly to save the day after the people of God had fallen into sin. After Joshua's armies conquered Canaan, we're talking walls of Jericho, promised land, all of that happened, the 12 tribes of Israel settled their allotted portions of land, They had no earthly king because God was to serve as their king. Kind of sounds like this church, a little bit. We have no pastor. But this required that the people follow and obey God. Listen to this. A situation that rarely existed during this period. The people soon became unfaithful to God and practiced their pagan neighbors' ways. To punish their disobedience, God allowed the Israelite neighbors to oppress them. The Israelites repented and asked God to rescue them, and he'd raise up various leaders among them to drive out the enemy. These leaders were known as judges. They not only defeated their enemies and drove them from the land, but they turned the Israelites' hearts back to God. They were warriors, and they turned the people's hearts back to God, which is so cool. But time after time, soon after the people were delivered from their oppressive neighbors, they lost their zeal for God, and this cycle began again. One of those judges during this time was a woman named Deborah. She is not the main character in our story right now, but she definitely needs a shout-out. She was the only woman judge in this whole time, and she was a powerhouse, for God. Her story is one of my favorites in the whole Bible. She was just a go get it done kind of woman, but she always pointed people back to God. It's during her time as judge that we find this story. So the Israelites are in this cycle of sin, okay? They're turning away from God, and God is allowing their enemies to come and oppress them and attack them. And then they're freaking out, we're sorry, God, come help us. And God in his mercy comes and helps them. And this is happening over and over and over and over again. One such enemy was this Canaanite king named Jabin. And Jabin had a commander of his army that his name was Sisera. And the Bible says that Sisera made it his life goal to ruthlessly oppress the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, for 20 years. For 20 years, this had been going on. He was oppressing them. Finally, the people got tired enough, and they call out to God, God, help us, save us from this oppression. It says, God heard their cries for help, and in his mercy... In God's great mercy, he sent them help yet again. This time, the help came in the form of the wise judge, Deborah. God gave her a plan, which she gave to a trusted warrior named Barak. And long story short, the Canaanites and the Israelites go go to fight it out. Okay, and God has said, I will defeat the Canaanites. I will give you this victory. So they go to fight it out, and God throws all of Sisera's army into this chaos. There says their chariots got stuck in the mud, and it was just this this chaotic mess, and the Israelites were able to defeat Sisera's army. It says not a single one was left. Not a single one was left. But Sisera, the commander of the army, he escapes, and this is where we find the story of our other. Read with me in Judges chapter 4. Meanwhile, the battle has been won by the Israelites. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Yael went to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you, is anybody here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Yael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and the tent peg from her, in her hand. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, nailing him to the ground, and so he died. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Yael went out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man you are looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera laying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. We know from other passages in the Bible that she also cut his head off but left it nailed to the floor. Right? Right? On that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. Yael was not an Israelite. In fact, it says that her people were on good terms with King Jabin, which is probably why Sisera thought he was safe going into her tent, that he would be protected there. But you have to understand that all of these tribes of people lived near each other. Hey, they weren't spread out over a whole country. They all lived in very close proximity together. So I bet you anything Yahael had seen the oppression that Sisera was causing these people. She probably didn't like it. I think she probably had also heard what the God of the Israelites had done for them in the past. And she wanted more of that. God used Yael to bring victory and freedom yet again back to his people. The Bible tells us that after that victory, Israel had peace in their land for 40 years. We don't know the end of Yael's story. We do know that her act was significant enough to be recorded in God's word. And a couple chapters later, Deborah, the wise judge, says, Most blessed among women is Yael. May she be blessed above all women who live in tents. What you need to know about Yael is that her job was to set up the tents. Her job was the keeper of the tents. She was very skilled at using a hammer and tent pegs to set up her tent. I know, it's laughable, but this is what I want you to hear. She was doing her ordinary tasks. She wasn't doing anything in a spotlight. She wasn't doing anything on a stage. She was doing her ordinary life. And when an opportunity to serve, the God of the universe showed up, she was ready. By killing Sisera, who was an oppressor of God's people and therefore an enemy of God, by putting him to death, she helped the Israelites finally have peace. So here's my fourth question for you. What needs to be put to death in your life for you to have peace? Let's be very clear. I am not suggesting you go out and kill someone. I'm talking about unrepented sin in your life that is keeping you from God. I'm talking about a bad habit that needs to be put to death. I'm talking about chronic complaining and negativity and whining that needs to die so you can have peace and freedom. I'm talking about addictions. Do you know that addictions are not just a problem for people who do drugs? An addiction can be Netflix, social media, keeping a perfect house. An addiction can be needing the approval of other people. An addiction is anything that you see, you do more often, you see as more important than the need for being obedient to God. So what is living in your life that needs to die so that you will have peace and freedom? We all have things that we need to put to death in our lives because they are stealing something else from us that God intends for us to have. I want you to ask this question, God, what in my life needs to die? What do I need to drive a tent peg through and kill it so that I can live fully in you? And as we wrap up this series, I hope you hear this. God used very ordinary people in the Bible to fulfill his extraordinary plan to bring us salvation. I don't see any people in the Bible that were not ordinary, not one. And that's us. That's you. God is saying, I want to use you. I want to make your life a blessing so that others see me in you. There may not be fame. Your name may never be known. You may be always categorized as another. But through your ordinary acts of obedience, his name will be lifted high. And that, my friends, is the only thing that matters. So as you go about your week, I want you to ask yourself these four questions. And I pray that they'll prompt you to step into an extraordinary call of God on you. From the life of Sarah, what does God want to put in you that seems impossible? From the Hebrew midwives, what in your life needs to be allowed to live? What needs some breath poured into it? From Mary, what has God put inside of you that you're keeping inside of you and it needs to be birthed so others can have freedom, so you can have freedom, so that weight and that burden that you're under can be lifted and you can walk fully In what God has called you to do. And from the life of Yael, what needs to die in your life so you can have peace? What needs to be put to death? Holy Spirit, you are here with us today. Your presence is all around us. We feel you. We know you are speaking to us, God. May we take these stories of ordinary people that acted in ordinary ways but had extraordinary results because of their obedience to God, because their heart conditions were turned towards him. God, may our hearts hearts be turned towards you, God, so that when you speak, we're listening, so that our own self-pity is not drowning out the voice of your Holy Spirit, Jesus. May we be bold enough. May we be courageous enough to really ask ourselves these questions. To really say, what is it, God, that needs to die in my life? What have I been holding on to that's keeping me from freedom? Father, I pray that you go with us today. That you give us courage and boldness to face what you've asked of us today in Jesus' name. Amen.